This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And today I am here with Brett Dakin, um, the author of American Daredevil, Comics, Communism, and the Battles of Lev Gleason. Thanks for being here, Brett. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks so much for having me. So I usually start with how you got into this topic, which is really perfect because you sort of talk about it in the beginning of the book as well. So can you talk about a bit about how you came about writing this book and what got you interested in um, doing this work? Absolutely. Well, this is a book about my great uncle, Lev Gleason. But the reality is that I never met him. and He died uh, several years before I was born. And growing up, I, I would hear stories about this guy. This is my mom's uncle. And they were intriguing. But for a kid, the one that I focused on the most was the story about Uncle Lev's Day, which was a day when the, my great uncle would come to town to visit my mom, who lived in the suburbs of Boston. And remember, Uncle Lev lived in New York City, so he was a flashy uncle from Manhattan, he would come to town in his gleaming aqua Packard, uh, often driven by a chauffeur, and he would uh, invite all the kids in the neighborhood to pile into the car and head to the mall and buy whatever they wanted, and he would foot the bill. So that was sort of the story that lodged in my memory, and I had a vague sense of how this guy became so wealthy which was he was a comic books publisher and he was one of the first comic book publishers in the United States and one of the most important of the golden age, which is really the period in the 1940s when you, uh, when comics in a sense were, had the biggest impact on American culture uh, that they have ever had. And he was one of the most important but growing up, I had no idea. All I knew was that he made a lot of money and then he lost it all. And by the time he passed away, again, in 1971, a few years before I was born, he essentially um, had nothing. And uh, I never thought to wonder why. Uh, and it really wasn't until I was graduating from law school. Um, and frankly, I was I should have been studying for my law school exams, but I was more interested in in kind of roaming the city of Boston and, and reading novels. Uh, and, I, and I read uh, Cavalier and Clay by Michael Shaban, which is, of course, a wonderful 
novel um, lodged in the canon, I would say, of fictional pop culture America. And Cavalier and Clay is really about this era in comic books. And it got me thinking, wow, was is this really about Uncle Lev? Uh, and my first thought was the archives of Harvard University, because I was at Harvard Law School and Uncle Lev went to Harvard for a year before dropping out to fight in World War I. And I basically came up empty. There wasn't much in the archives. I talked to my mother, got a little bit more information about the background of our family. Really, he was a New Englander, uh, stretching back uh, for many generations. Um, but I realized that I was going to have to go outside my family and school uh, to figure out the truth about this man. And it led me to New York City, where I myself moved after graduating from law school and into uh, the archives of places like the New York Public Library, New York University, uh, the New York Times, and a journey through this man's life, which was tough to figure out because, of course, he died such a long time ago. But what I encountered was a really exciting and extraordinary story, both about comic books, but also about American history and the political left. So that's basically how I got into it. Yeah, it's really interesting that uh, you have it set up so that we get this feel for your uncle, right? So we get this feel for Lev Gleason, but we also sort of understand what's going on or, or this glimpse into what's happening in New, not only in New York, um, but sort of around the country with uh, leftist politics and left-leaning thought, um, especially between during both wars and between the wars. So can you talk a little bit about um, how your uncle sort of got to New York City, that sort of um, that getting to New York and getting involved in the comic industry, in the publishing industry. Sure. Yeah. So as I said, he grew up in, in Newton, Mass, in the suburbs of Boston, very comfortable, uh, very well off. Um, and he dropped out of Harvard to fight in World War One because he was even at that young age, searching for adventure. He served in World War I in France, and then he stuck around in Paris for a while. There was actually a program for American servicemen to study at the Sorbonne, and he did that. And then he even lived in France for a while, just kind of futzing around. And when he came back, he did settle in Boston, and he got involved in a little bit of uh, being a stockbroker, advertising, and then eventually he found magazines. And that was really a saving grace for him because it was, uh, he found it exciting. He was able to uh, get stuck in. And he really started with uh, a magazine for kids called The Open Road for Boys based in Boston. And that was where he kind of cut his teeth in how to make publishing uh, more lucrative and with a, with kids as the target. Um, at that time, it, you know, this magazine, for example, Open Road for Boys, it really was targeted at parents. I mean, when you read the articles, it was very, like it was very unattractive to a child. So Uncle Lev 
uh, really changed the focus. And one of the things that he actually did was he came up with a cartoon uh, contest where readers could send in cartoons to match a caption that he had sort of thrown out there. And a lot of the people who sent in those cartoons ended up being quite important uh, comic artists later in New York City, like Jack Cole. And But the thing is, back to your question, Uncle Lev, he was desperate to get out of Boston. Let's face it. He really wanted to take uh, his life to a new place, leave his family behind, leave behind Newton and his dad, who was a prominent doctor, Harvard and the stuffiness of his academic background. He also went to Phillips Andover, very stuffy. And so he moved to New York uh, in the early 30s and he started anew. And it was really in magazines and advertising where he got started. And that was where the American comic book was born. Um, And just as an aside, I didn't know about any of this. And growing up, I was not a comic book fan. I was not a comic book reader. I was a big reader of fiction and books, but I wasn't into comic books. So it was really through discovering Uncle Lev's story that I learned about um, the story of the comic book industry. And it was essentially born as a vehicle for advertising. Um, Cartoons, of course, weren't new. Uh, when Uncle Lev came along, but he and his colleagues found a way to repackage cartoons as a standalone, you know, 64 page booklet uh, that first was given away for free and was subsidized, funded by ads, but eventually came to be sold for 10 cents an issue. And he essentially came up with that format He was not an artist. Uh, There's no evidence that he ever drew a cartoon. Uh, He was a publisher, so he was behind the scenes. And I think what I found to be uh, one of his great traits, maybe his genius, was that he was able to find incredible talent and put them to work in the pages of his comic books and his other non-politics, left-leaning news publications, and really showcase their work. Um, But he was always in uh, a behind-the-scenes publisher role throughout his comic book career. Yes, and I appreciate how you sort of frame that and package that and talk about that sort of move from comics being – and you you have some of the ads in there about get your free comic, right, if you buy this. And um, that move from the comics being part of something else to being their sort of own booklet – and in that golden age and that history of comics, we sort of know that young people were 80 to 90 percent of young people were reading comics, right? Boys and girls. Um, and it was really huge until we had, you you know, you talk about some of those issues that come across the um and that push against comics and comics being problematic. But you also talk about, so you have the comics and the start of the comics, but like you just mentioned, you talk about some of his other publications, um, some of his sort of more left-leaning publications as well. And so can you talk a little bit, because those become really important uh, to his career and also to um, some of the ways he is... Uh, he he is he deals with media and deals with politics. So can you talk a little bit about those sort of left-leaning 
publications that he puts out as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I'll start, I'll, I'll enter into that through the lens of the comic book because uh, there was one particular issue that was released in the July of 1941, which is called Daredevil Battles Hitler. And, you know, Daredevil was uh, probably the best known of Uncle Lev's superhero comics. He eventually was better known for his crime comics, and we can get to that um, in a moment. But his superhero comics included Daredevil. And and the, the what I found so fascinating about this issue of Daredevil called Daredevil Battles Hitler was that it was really the first time that a, a fictitious superhero was paired with a real-life villain. Uh, and it's interesting on its, on its face. It's interesting artistically in terms of its narrative um, and the story behind the production of it is interesting. But it, from my perspective, it was most interesting as a lens uh, through which to view Uncle Love's politics. Because by that time, uh, in, uh, as I say, summer 1941, the the country was really not ready to enter into World War II. I think when we look back on it, uh, we think of the United States, obviously, as our entrance into the war as a game changer, both in Europe and in the Pacific. Um, But the fact is that a lot of Americans were really not uh, eager to get into the war. Um, Part of that was, of course, we'd been in World War I, which was devastating in Europe and and also for a lot of American families, and wasn't was unclear uh, the effectiveness of our uh, involvement in World War One. But also, there was a movement in the United States to keep the U.S. out of World War Two. And the fact is that Uncle Lev was really involved in exposing that movement. So by the time he got to publishing Daredevil Battles Hitler, in which a, in a comic book format. He was encouraging the United States to enter the war and to beat fascism in Europe. He had already been very involved in a journalistic publishing sense in exposing domestic fascism uh, in the United States and encouraging uh, the U.S. government to fight against fascism in Europe. And one example of that would be Friday magazine. Now, Friday Magazine looks, it really looks just like Life Magazine. It's the same sort of large, broad sheet format, very photograph heavy. So from a distance, you might say, oh, it's kind of like Life. But when you get up close, you realize that all of the articles are about uh, things like how, you know, Henry Ford was uh, basically an anti-Semite. And, uh, you know, uh, Charles Lindbergh, the great, uh, aviator and American hero uh, was uh, pro Hitler and the uh, a spokesman and face of the America First Committee, which uh, you know, of course, today we hear echoes of America First, but back then, what it meant was, you know, let keep the U.S. out of the war. And so he was he published Friday Magazine uh, and a number of other left leaning magazines and books all are all sort of geared towards this general uh, movement to fight against fascism in Europe, but also here at home. And I think fascism 
is, is a term that is obviously very, very uh, difficult to unpack, but for Uncle Lev, it, would, it encompassed um, uh, anti-Semitism. It encompassed uh, anti-Black racism and discrimination. Um, it, it encompassed uh, union busting uh, and anti-labor. All of these uh, forces which existed uh, in the U.S., obviously, still exist today. And he uh, and his colleagues were, they, they were keen on exposing these forces and to some extent sensationalizing them. You mentioned his knack for, for ad copy. Uh, he, he, he took the same approach uh, as he did to selling comics uh, to selling uh, these magazines. And so very sensationalistic uh, language like for Friday magazine, it was you know, a magazine that quote dared to be different, which is frankly almost exactly the phrase he used to sell daredevil. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I call the book American daredevil because daring was uh, something that he loved to do. And it, it did get him into trouble later in his career. Right. And we, we have to say that uh, this Many times when I interview people who have researched uh, comics, especially early comics, um, Daredevil is not the Marvel Daredevil. It's a very different Daredevil um, that uh, came out prior to when Marvel introduced their own Daredevil. So this is a very separate comic. That's right. Uh, Yes. That's right. (laughs) We have to be. Marvel apparently likes to um, reinvent like or <laughs> they they like to take names that people have already used. Of uh, the other comic that you talk about um, and that you say he's really big for, which is interesting, and again, um, there's a pushback on this one is the crime doesn't pay. So can you talk a little bit about crime doesn't pay as well? Absolutely. And- yeah. <laughs> it, this was uh, so crime does not pay was born out of a realization, I think, that Uncle Lev had that while superhero comics like Daredevil uh, and Superman and uh, Captain Marvel were very successful um, during the war and in some ways helped by the American war effort in terms of global distribution, um, he had an inkling that that wasn't going to last forever. And that when GI started returning from the war um, and people started focusing on the home front again, that that kind of sort of, you know, wholesomeness of, you know, men in tights leaping around the world, uh, saving uh, humanity probably wasn't going to fly anymore. And so he asked his team to come up with something new and, and they did. And it was um, the first true life uh, comic book called Crime Does Not Pay. And it really focused on the stories of real life criminals, gangsters, murderers, rapists. I mean, it was really, the, it's in some ways, the most gruesome uh, stories they could find ripped from uh, the headlines. These were true stories. And they were... Uh, Of course, crime had been the focus of comics for a while, like Dick Tracy. Um, But here the focus was on the criminals and their stories. Where did they come from? Why did they 
become criminals? Uh, and then ultimately, how were they brought to justice? That was sort of uh, what Uncle Lev often point to later when these comics came under criticism. He would say, well, the, the criminal always paid the penalty. Um, and in fact, one of the features of crime does not pay that I always found um, very interesting is that while every story was different, some continuity was provided by this narrator figure called Mr. Crime. It was this kind of ghoulish looking figure who would narrate these stories and kind of pop in at times and serve as kind of a, a, a an anti-conscience uh, encouraging these criminals to engage in their dastardly deeds. But then he would always return uh, and say, you know, uh, well, this guy was caught and, you know, remember kids, crime doesn't pay. So it was, it was framed within that uh, narrative of criminal justice and just desserts. But uh, the reality was that it was, it, it really did engage very deeply in the, the gruesome crimes that, um, that these real life criminals had, uh, had committed. And this comic book was really successful, Rebecca. I mean, I, I was amazed. It, it was it outsold Superman by the end of the decade, and it was it was by far the best selling title of any of Lev Gleason's publications. Um, and I think, and in fact, it spurred uh, you know a whole host of competitors with hilarious <laughs> knockoff names like you know crime. Uh, the criminal shall meet their just desserts or something like that. I mean, they're really all of these plays on basically the same exact theme. Crime does not pay. And in fact, Lev himself came out with crime and punishment, which was in a, in a sense, an imitation of his own uh, successful title. But the, while he was very successful, the success brought a lot of criticism um, not just on Lev himself, but on the comic book industry as a whole. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. So he has, and maybe we'll come back to that criticism on the comic book industry because prior to that, right, he he spends a lot of time in courts um, sort of battling people. Um, and and one of the first things you, you talk about um, his membership in the Joint Anti-Fascist Refugee Committee and their battle with the Un-American Activities Committee. Um, So can you talk a little, because that's a really important um, part of American history during this time, and his involvement and the people he was sort of involved in this with were all really important, many of them still important names, right, in history. So can you talk a little bit about that? And then maybe we can move into looking at their comics, Corruption of Children, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> the seduction of the innocent. Um, and and you, you point to, I think, one of the reasons why I, I called this book American Daredevil Comics, Communism and the Battles of Lev Gleason, because 
this guy was always fighting someone about something. And <laughs> it really is kind of exhausting at a certain point reading through his <laughs> his life in really in the in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. He, you know, as we'll get to, he kind of peters out by the end of the 50s and his business collapses. But in those decades, he he was he was always fighting with someone, whether it was on the comic book front or the politics front. And the Joint Anti-Fascist Refugee Committee was a, a group that he was uh, a member of the board of. He was the treasurer of. This was one of his many uh, philanthropic volunteer uh, extracurriculars, you might call it, in Manhattan. He, you know, just by just as a sort of uh, by way of context, you know, he and his wife Peggy were, were very involved in politics and uh, activism, kind of in the way that people are today. I mean, there were gala dinners at the Hotel Commodore. There were fundraising appeals by mail, uh, soliciting donations. All And there were many, many organizations that he was involved with, all, again, with a view to supporting progressive, anti-fascist, uh, anti-discrimination, um, pro-Black and minority rights and pro-labor causes. Um, and the Joint Anti-Fascist Refugee Committee was the one that got the most attention and ultimately led to his being convicted of contempt of Congress because he and the board refused to name names of the supporters of the organization and the people the organization were trying to help. And the people the organization were trying to help were refugees of the Spanish Civil War. And the just very brief uh background on the history, and I am not an expert. There was uh, a Democrat that was threatened by the pro-fascist movement, um, and the, there were people um, and the U.S. remained neutral, um, which, again, I think Americans would not, would be surprised to realize that we actually, in a conflict between a democratically elected government and a fascist insurgency, which ultimately prevailed, and as we know, Franco remained in power um, until, I think, until just before uh, I was born, um, the U.S. remained neutral. And this war uh, resulted in refugees, and this organization was founded to support these refugees. Now, this is where we get into uh, the, the accusation of communism um, and what, what happened with the Joint Anti-Fascist Refugee Committee is that the U.S. government, and by that I mean the Justice Department um, and the FBI, reporting up, by the way, to ultimately to Harry Truman, of whom Uncle Lev was a big supporter. Um, you know, he, he worshipped FDR and he strongly supported Harry Truman. But Harry Truman did oversee 
a federal government infrastructure that was uh, used to designate uh, particular groups and then people as communists or communist fronts. And that's what happened with the Joint Anti-Fascist Refugee Committee. And so as a result of that action, the House Un-American Activities Committee, which was uh, a committee in the House of Representatives, which was dedicated to rooting out a communist. It was called the Un-American Activities Committee, but that's really what it was focused on. And it was, it was run by um, some representatives who were really, when we look back on their records, um, were really quite uh, un-American themselves in the sense that they uh, were talking about Martin Dyes, John Rankin. These are often Southern Democrats who were uh, against integration, uh, often uh, pro-white supremacy, uh, blatantly anti-Semitic in a lot of their language, even on the House floor, which uh, I write about in the book, which is um, quite was quite shocking to me to read. Um, these were the guys who were in charge of this committee uh, and they were able to use it to really um, conduct an inquisition into groups like uh, the Joint Anti-Fascist Refugee Committee, which um, eventually all of the members of the board were convicted of contempt of Congress and several of them were sent to jail. Um, Uncle Lev was able to avoid that, um, but he did uh, suffer um, a lot of ridicule in the press. Uh, and as you say, it would it would led to even more battles as he fought to protect his reputation and against this accusation of, of being uh, un-American and uh, a communist. Right. So he's fighting these battles. And, and, and at the same time, we see during the war, um, a bit of drop in the discussion of comics becoming um, causing juveniles to become juvenile delinquents. But then in the 50s, we have these huge anti-comics crusade, right, led by Wortham and this real push against comics and against the comic industry where Lev gets really involved in this. And so can you talk a little bit about that sort of battle and, and what we see happening, um, especially in the 1950s with the comic book industry um, and, and what happens there? Absolutely. Basically, one... Just as that controversy about the anti-fascist committee was subsiding, uh, the controversy on the comic side really amped up. And uh, there was a sense um, among many parents, um, the Catholic Church, uh, certain journalists and writers, politicians, uh, community organizations nationwide, that comic books were causing juvenile delinquency. They were somehow causing kids to behave badly, to rebel against authority, uh, to question uh, the government, to question the police. Uh, and, and people found this profoundly disturbing. Now, the reality is, as I mentioned before, the content of the comic books could be pretty gruesome. And Crime Does Not Pay, which led to a whole uh, a flourishing of, 
of comics in the true crime uh, category, which subsequently led to horror comics, uh, which were even more sort of over the top in their depiction of fictionalized uh, or fictional uh, uh, gruesome uh, crimes. They were, these were disturbing images, even to me as I, as I went back and, and looked at them as part of the research. But the, the attempt by these anti-comics forces to censor comics um, really, it, it didn't ultimately work, um, uh, essentially because of the protections of the Constitution, the, the First Amendment, but it required the industry to fight back really hard. So Uncle Lev was part of the creation of uh, an industry association, and he became the president of the Comic Book Publishers Association. And he was very active uh, on radio, on uh, eventually on television, uh, in newspapers, uh, contesting the very idea that comic books were bad for kids. And he did that in, he, he tried out a variety of different arguments. And I, and I will say that I think they are of varying degrees of, of convincing. Um, but, he, you know, one of the first arguments that he made was, well, it's, it's not up to these sort of arbiters of good taste to tell people what they should and shouldn't read. And if comic books are popular and, and children are choosing to read them, then that must mean that they're, they have an inherent value because people are choosing to read them. Um, and then after that, he would also make the argument that a lot of people reading comic books were not children. Um, and you know, good data on this is hard to come by, but uh, adults were really into these comic books too. And in fact, Uncle Lev tried hard through his ads to push comic books into the hands of adults, especially titles like Crime Does Not Pay. Um, so, you know, at the same time as he was saying that comics were fine for kids, he was also saying that actually they were designed for adults as well. Uh, and then I would say the third and most important argument that, the, that he and the industry made was this is... Uh, America and you can't censor uh, content. The government cannot censor content. And eventually that argument was successful in the courts, but not before the, the issue had reached such a fever pitch, partly because of Dr. Fred Wortham in his book, The Seduction of the Innocent, in which he really sensationalized certain images, um, including some from Crime Does Not Pay, uh, but also even Superman, Batman, he made claims about not just criminality, but also sexuality, including homosexuality, trying to tie them, uh, tie all these, you know, bad things back to um, the pages of comic books. And eventually there was, uh, there were hearings in the United States Senate um, that the nation really focused on. I mean, it was very gripping, I think, for people, partly because parents were so concerned, um, that resulted in recommendations that while recognizing that the government couldn't step in and 
regulate comic books due to constitutional concerns, the industry itself would have to do the job. And that is ultimately what happened. And so the industry put into place the comics code, which uh, essentially made the kind of comics that Uncle Lev was producing uh, impossible to produce. Um, for example, any anti-authoritarian uh, message, any questioning of the police, even the use of the word crime in the title, these were uh, outlawed, as it were, by this uh, self-censorship mechanism that the industry put in place. Uh, and so ultimately, uh, along with other changes um, that you alluded to in, in taste and just changes in American popular culture, uh, led to the, the death of a lot of comic book titles uh, and companies, including Lev Gleason Publications, which went out of business in around 1956. Right. And, and he just sort of disappears, as you say, from public life. And you have to go to um, the Freedom of Information Act to sort of find mm -hmm. out what then happened to him. Sort of, you know, what happened after this these comics disappeared, he and his wife sold their home, and they just sort of vanished from public record. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like, you know, how he disappears, how he sort of disappears in the public record, and what you learned? Absolutely. I, and you know, you mentioned before that the, the daredevil that people are most familiar with today is not the daredevil we're talking about. And part of the reason for that is that the, you know, Uncle Lev's Daredevil, along with everything else uh, that he published, fell into the public domain because he made no attempt to protect any of it. And this is just extraordinary when people, when I tell this to people, uh, because now we recognize the value of this content and you know, companies like Marvel and DC and Disney are desperate to hang on to the copyright and, you know, as long as they possibly can. But Uncle Lev just let it all go. And I, and I think the reason is because he, uh, at, it, during this period, late 50s, he had just kind of had enough. He had been fighting for his reputation on the political front and then on the comics front for, you know, at least a decade. Um, through the Freedom of Information Act, I was able to get my hands on his FBI file, and it turns out the FBI had been investigating Uncle Lev very in a very detailed fashion for more than a decade, and he himself uh, would have become aware of that by then because the FBI interviewed him directly um, in uh, at around this period, the mid to late fifties, and I think that he was just tired. Um, in addition to the fact that his business was not nearly as successful as it has been, as it has, sorry, as it had been. And, uh, and so when you ask what happened to him, well, people thought, they literally thought he had disappeared. I had, you know, one woman I talked to who was the daughter of uh, Charlie Byron, who was Uncle Lev's most important editor and writer and really was key to the success of uh, most of these titles, she was convinced that he had moved to South America. 
you know, like a Nazi moving to Argentina after World War II or something. Um, I mean, people had all sorts of, of crazy uh, ideas because he had really cut himself off from that entire world. It turns out the, the reality was something much more uh, mundane, which was that he, he became a real estate broker and he moved up to Westchester. Uh, he and his wife bought, uh, they sold their house uh, that they had been living in during the height of his success and fame. Uh, and they moved into something much more modest and a much more modest community. And he just kind of sold real estate, didn't do that well. Uh, he did not give another interview. I mean, I cannot find uh, a record of him in the public domain other than ads for his real estate brokerage uh, after 1956, 1957. So he really did um, just take a step back and... You know, the title of my of the last chapter in the book is Watching the World Go By, um, which is the way that he characterized himself at the end of his life in the anniversary publication of his uh, of the Harvard class of 1920, which is the class he would have graduated with if he had stuck with college. Uh, and he described himself and his wife Peggy as, as in retirement, hanging out, watching the world go by, although he made sure to get in there, and I love this about him, that he was adamantly opposed to the war in Vietnam, and that he was waiting for the day when Black people would come into full equality uh, in this country, and he really does express a degree of hope for the future, um, and uh, he talks about the younger generation, which of course had been receiving, was on the receiving end of so much criticism from his classmates who regarded a lot of them as, as uh, irresponsible revolutionaries. He, uh, he looked to them for leadership um, and did have hopes for a better future. So that's essentially how his life ended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He just sort of, and, and you sort of end the book sort of talking about what happens with some of the other major characters or major figures in his publishing career, comic book publishing career, to sort of let people know what happened with some of the artists and that were part of that career as well. Yeah, and some of them really came to very tragic ends. Uh, and as far as I can tell, Uncle Lev did not have any communication with any of them, which did lead to some bitterness on the part of these artists and their families. I mean, one in particular, which is the most salacious story that a lot of people who are familiar with this period in comics history will will tell, is uh, is Bob Wood, who was kind of the partner of Charlie Byro. The two of them, Charlie Byro and Bob Wood, were hired by Uncle Lev to produce titles like Daredevil and Crime Does Not Pay. Well, Bob Wood ended up murdering his girlfriend and being sent away to Sing Sing for a while. And he ended up dying in obscurity. No one is exactly sure how, but people are often just shocked by that story because a guy who had become so successful and well-regarded uh, fictionalizing real life criminal uh, criminals pursuits uh, became a convicted criminal himself. Mm-hmm. 
So we've been talking about this, your book for a while. So is there any sort of last words about this story that you want to talk about or, and, or um, sort of anything you want to share that you're either working on now or trying to get out there now? Well, I, I think I'll, I'd love to just end by saying that I've been working on this book forever. I mean, it's amazing how long books take to write. And frankly, it's amazing that anyone writes books anymore in this world of uh, such fast moving uh, data flow and short attention spans. But one thing that's happened is because as I've written the book, uh, the messages of Uncle Lev um, from the 40s, especially uh, into the early 50s, 50s have only become more relevant and resonant today. So it's just amazing to me that we are talking about uh, fascism and the threat of fascism here in the United States in 2020 in sometimes using very similar language as Uncle Lev would have used to describe the threat of fascism uh, on the home front back in 1942, when I was just looking at an issue of Daredevil from, I think it was October 1942, uh, in which the title of the story is uh, Dark Hearts in White Hats. And it's all about (laughs) Daredevil fighting against uh, neo-Nazis in the United States who are clothed in white robes for a thinly veiled reference obviously to the Ku Klux Klan but it's it, it is just amazing to me how uh, these themes in American life in American history and politics uh, they don't go away they simply recur in a different veil now they're now these messages of hate are on Twitter and Reddit um, Whereas for Uncle Lev, he was more worried about newspapers, radio, and magazines. But it's the same, uh, the same threat, the same impulses are here. And uh, we have to work very hard to understand them and, and counter them when necessary. Yes. No, I found, I agree. I found that really interesting in reading and thinking even about this move for the anti-fascist hate groups and, and everything that's been sort of happening right now in the U.S. And, and and how it harkens back to a lot of what we've, we've experienced in history prior. That's right. So. Yeah. We always can learn from our history. <laughs> yes. Well, it's been wonderful talking with you about this book. Um, again, this was Brett Dakin, who wrote American Daredevil, Comics, Communisms, and the Battles of Love Gleason. Um, I'm Rebecca Buchanan for New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And Brett, thanks for talking with me. 